0: Today we continue a series of discussions about the basics of Marxism, a method for understanding and changing the world, used by many of the great thinkers of modern history. Today we'll discuss the theory of surplus value. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality, there's no denying it. Capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We're excited to have Professor Richard Wolff join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week. Thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. If you're not a patron now, please show your support and help this show by becoming a patron. Patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolff.com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you. Today we'll continue our series. Last week we talked about monopoly, the trend or tendency towards monopoly replacing, but not completely replacing, so called competitive capitalism. Today we're going to be talking about surplus value or what might be called the primary source, or one of the primary sources of profit under capitalism. In 1865, Karl Marx delivered a lecture to a group of workers assembled by or organized by what was called the First International, also known as the International Working Men's Association. It was an international organization which aimed at uniting a variety of different left-wing socialist, communist, and anarchist groups and trade unions that were based on the working class and class struggle. That international was, well, the principal organizer really was, and certainly the principal spokesperson was none other than Karl Marx, who had spent the you know earlier 20 years ever since the The defeat of the 1848 revolution mainly focused on study, mainly focused on study and writing. Right before the formation of the International, he published Capital or Das Kapital, his monumental work about the laws of capitalism. But in this lecture delivered in 1865, which was later printed as Value, Price, and Profit. Marx had never published the lecture himself during his lifetime. Engels found it among his works after he died and it was later published and became popular because it really takes Marx's key concepts that are in capital, which are complex and especially the first part of the book hard for many people to read but it makes it available to a working class audience. I mean, these were workers who go to work every day. They couldn't spend their time at the library. They weren't necessarily from the university. And the brilliance of the speech of the lecture is that it takes these complex concepts that are in capital and makes them accessible for working folks. And of course, Marx considered that to be his target audience because he believed workers were going to change the world. Chapter 10 of Value, Price, and Profit is entitled, Profit is Made by Selling a Commodity at Its Value. Now, that may seem, Professor Wolf, to be sort of perplexing because a lot of people think, well, a capitalist invests money, gets raw materials, machinery, hires workers, and then sells something. And at the time of sale, they make a profit. But Marx is making the point that at the time of sale, profit is realized, but the commodity is actually selling at its value. So that would make one wonder, if a commodity is selling at its value, at its real value, where does profit come from? And that, in fact, takes us into the discussion where Marx makes the argument in Capital that the source of profit is not at the time of sale. But actually, at the point of production, let's just talk about this theory, the theory of surplus value, which is again premised or Marxist contributions to an earlier, already existing labor theory of value, which was, you know, written about by classical political economists like Adam Smith or Ricardo. Anyway, let's start with our discussion: surplus value. Okay, first of all, let me thank you for putting this on the agenda. These
1: ideas and concepts that Marx developed, which is in the end why he is so important in the history of human thought, the contributions of Aristotle and Plato, of Thomas Aquinas, St. Augustine, Galileo, I mean, a, a countless list of the great thinkers of the modern and of the ancient world. Marx belongs in them because he too opened up whole new ways of thinking, whole new understandings, and it really is only because here in the United States, after World War II, we descended into our own dark ages, known as the Cold War, that it became fashionable and necessary for the careers of politicians, academics, journalists, and so on to either not know anything about Marx and Marxism or to pretend not to know anything about it and to do their part, consciously or not, willingly or not, do their part to bury these ideas, to basically deprive two, three generations of American citizens of being able to learn and build upon and be critical of, for sure, these ideas of Marx The way we were taught in school to learn from and yet take further and be critical of all the other great theories that have been produced. So I really appreciate that you're bringing that back and having a balanced conversation about it. So let's begin here. Marx doesn't deny profit, Profit exists, corporations exist, making profit. Businesses are created in order to get a profit. Building your profit is the goal of businessmen and women. So no one is disputing that there is profit. The only debate is where does the profit come from? How do we account for profit? And here Marx makes a very distinctive contribution. And you're quite right. He uses the labor theory of value, which, by the way, he took from Adam Smith and David Ricardo in no way is a labor theory of value unique to Marx. Saying so was a fiction of the Cold War, like so many other things. And I'm going to explain it, but I'm not going to do it in Marx's language, because his was the language of, you know, almost 200 years ago now rather than the language that we're comfortable with now. So I'm going to do a little adjustment, but it's only for purposes of clarity. So here's the story. Every business man or woman who runs a business, whether it's large or small or in between, knows that the business works roughly as follows. First, you buy all kinds of non-human inputs tools, equipment, machinery, the building in which the production occurs, and so on. You hope to recover all the money you laid out for the tools, equipment, raw materials, and so on, when you sell the product. In other words, if what goes in is $10 worth, well, then you know the output has to be worth at least $10 to recover what you laid out. For the tools, equipment, and raw materials. But of course, tools, equipment, and raw materials are useless to you if they just sit there in your factory, in your office, in your store, or wherever your business occurs. The thing that makes life in a production system, the things that makes life in an economic system, is like the thing that makes life in society human beings. And in the case of the business, it's human beings doing something, using their brains and their muscles to transform the raw materials, using the tools and equipment to produce a final product. And the business— The capitalist enterprise, whether it's a factory, an office, or a store, lays out money for the tools, equipment, and raw materials, and lays out money to hire the workers who come and use their brains and muscles so as to produce an output. And one of the distinctive things about capitalism is that the workers who do the work The hired workers who do the work of producing the output are denied any access to that output. In other words, as fast as the workers produce it, they lose it. They never really have it. It belongs to the person who hired them. Okay, now let's think about what that means. The person who hires, the employer, the capitalist, is in the business to make more money at the end than he threw in at the beginning. Otherwise, he wouldn't be a capitalist, he wouldn't be making a profit, he wouldn't be growing, and he wouldn't have anything to eat or drink or put on his back. He has to earn something. He has to come out of the process with more money than he went in on. So the output has to be sold for more than the money laid out for the tools, equipment, raw materials on the one hand, and to hire the workers on the other. And now let's imagine the conversation between the employer and the worker once you have all that in your head. You talk about the job. The employer explains to you, the worker. That you'll be expected to come 9 to 5, Monday through Friday. You will be sitting over there. The employer tells you where to sit. You will be doing the following kind of activity. The employer tells you what to do. You'll be using this equipment. The employer tells you what equipment you're going to be using because it belongs to the employer. And then you get to the little dicey moment. How much are you going to get paid? And let's assume very simply that you and the employer agree that you will be paid $20 per hour. Okay, now we have the scene. You come Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. You put in your hours, and at the end of the workday on Friday, on your way home for the weekend, you get a pay envelope handed to you that has in it the number of hours you worked, multiplied by $20, because that's what each hour earns you. That's your salary or your wage. Now, in the mind of the employer is a simple reality which Marx figured out. But we all kind of know it. It just marks thought it through and wrote it down and thereby we can learn about it even if we don't immediately go through it as an experience, which is what much writing is all about. The employer understands what Marx is now going to explain. I cannot sell the output for the amount of money that I spent on the tools, equipment, and raw materials that go into the output, plus the wages I paid to the workers. Because if I sell the output for the combined cost of production, tools, equipment, and raw materials on the one hand, hired laborer on the other, then there's nothing in it for me. The only way I can get something out of it is if, during production, the worker adds value to the tools, equipment, and raw materials that is greater than what I, the employer, pay him for doing that. It's really simple. There's got to be a difference between what your labor adds to what the employer has to sell. Every hour that you work there, there's more, either more quantity or better quality of output. Your labor, means that the output has more value than if you didn't apply your labor. That's why the employer hires you. He wants you, using your brains and muscles, to add value to the tools, equipment, and raw materials the employer has already purchased. And that's what you do. That's what you're hired to do you work, and during your hour you add value to the product which immediately belongs to the employer who then sells it in the market. And here comes the punchline. Each hour that you labor, you add value to the tools, equipment, and raw materials that are used up equal to—I'm going to pick a number now— $25 $25 worth. So the employer sells the output to which your labor has added $25. But what does he pay you? Answer, what you agreed to when you signed on to this job, namely $20 an hour. You go home with $20 for the hours you put in. The employer waves you a happy goodbye as you head home for the weekend. Why? Because he knows that having paid you $20 for each hour you worked, that hour added $25 to what your employer has to sell. Who gets to keep the difference between the value you add by your labor on the one hand, and the value paid to you by your employer on the other. And in this case that would be five dollars per hour. Answer: That belongs to the capitalist. The way Marx spelled it out in the German language that he was born into and that he used to think things through, even though he lived in London as an adult, In the German language, the word is more, M-E-H-R, the German word, mehr. And the point he made was, the worker adds more value when he or she works than he or she is paid. That got translated into English with a, a bit of an odd translation. Not the word more, which would have been clear and obvious, but instead the word surplus. And that's the theory that the place where the capitalist gets what's his as an employer is by being in a position to take for himself a portion of the value produced by the worker that is excess to, surplus to, what is paid to the worker as a wage. That is called surplus value. And that is the point and purpose of capitalism, to get that surplus out of your workers and to get it for yourself. It means, for example, that if you spent $20 on tools, equipment, and raw materials used up each hour and $20 on the worker who made them into the final product, That the value, what you had at the end, was 20, tools, equipment, and raw materials used up, 20 paid to the worker, plus 5, which was the surplus value produced by the worker, but not given to the worker. And that's your surplus, and that's what capitalists are in the business of producing. Once Marx had set it up this way, Once Marx was able to see this and to understand it and to write it down, whether it was in the early chapters of his monumental Capital three-volume work, or in the Value, Price, and Profit, or Wage, Labor, and Capital, the shorter versions of these key ideas that were published, some during his lifetime and some, as Brian said, afterwards really is secondary, because what's crucial here are the implications of what I've just said to you. And here are just a couple. Number one, this then is a system of conflict at its core. Why? Because the worker, sooner or later, whether he or she is conscious or not, is going to want more Why? Because wages are the determinant of your life. The wage you get determines whether you can have a family, whether you can take care of your family, whether you can have children, whether you can take a vacation, whether you can—you get the picture. So the worker wants more, but the capitalist, the employer, doesn't want to give him any more. Why? Because the more you give the worker, the smaller the surplus. Because the worker works, adds a certain amount of value, the more you give him or her, the worker, the less is that residual, that surplus left for you. Which means that capitalism is at its core a conflict-ridden system. If you look upon the worker as a class of people, the working class, and you look upon the employer as another class, the capitalist class, in it to make money, to make their money grow, and that's all capital means, well then, capitalism is a system that has class conflict, class struggle at its core. And that kind of struggle never stops. It's there when the worker pushes for a wage increase. It's there when the employer, wanting to get more out of the worker, cuts back the time you can go to the bathroom during the day, wants you to work faster, wants you to stay a little longer to produce a little more value but not pay you anymore. The thousand little ways that the class struggle expresses itself. Likewise, it expresses itself when the worker, in anger at being pressed like this, in anger at not getting enough of a wage to lead a decent life, drops his shoe into the machinery. In the French language, Marx loved this, in the French language, there was a part of France, the northern part of that country, where workers used wooden shoes. Those are famous for Holland, but it was in many parts of Europe that shoes were for a long time made out of wood. And the French word for a wooden shoe was, and is the word, sabot. S-A-B-O-T. And if a worker in anger over the class struggle threw his or her shoe into the machinery, it was called sabotage, or sabotage, which becomes an English word meaning something very related, doesn't it? Or you can have a strike when workers say, okay, you're not going to give us enough of the value our labor adds, we're not going to work for you at all, and then you're not going to get any surplus at all. And then the capitalist has to call in the police or somebody else to try to browbeat the workers to go back, because the capitalist needs them to be working in order for the surplus that he gets from them to be, in fact, taken from them. And how is that manifested today? Examples are thousands. I'll give you one. Over the last 14 months, we've gone through one of the worst public health disasters in American history. The last viral pandemic was 100 years ago, at the end of World War I. What was the pressure over these last 14 years from the business community? It was against lockdowns. It was against closing businesses. It was in favor of reopening as soon as possible. Why? Because if workers were fearful of dying from COVID, they wouldn't go to work. And if they don't go to work, they don't produce a surplus. You can replace a sick or dead worker with another one, and that way you keep your surplus going. And even though you know it's a little scary, well, if you can be a safe distance away from the workers, or if you can get a vaccine earlier than the next guy, what you need is that surplus. You want to keep your workers working because that's the way you get a surplus. It's been the pressure of capitalists always. Here's another example if you can pay your workers less while they continue to produce all the value that their brains and muscles allow, well then the surplus is larger because you've had to give less of the value produced by your workers back to them as a wage. You get to keep more. So here's your interest, Let's hire children because we can pay them less than adults. Let's hire females because we can pay them less than men, at least in some social situations. Let's bring in desperate poor immigrants because we can pay them less than we pay native folks. This way you can develop hostilities, angers, and bitternesses among people as they are forced to compete for the jobs that capitalists want for surplus extraction, thereby favoring the lowest paid that they can get away with. That's part of the reason why businesses closed in the United States over the last 30 years to move to China and India and Brazil. Why? Because you can pay the worker less there. So what the worker adds during the hour that he or she works those twenty-five dollars in my example, you don't have to give them twenty in a wage. You can get away with giving them fifteen or ten or nine, and the less you give them, the more the surplus you can keep for yourself. It produces ugly inequality ugly social relationships, Marx was able, by his simple explanation of how production works, how surplus value is extracted by one class of people, a small minority, the employer, from another class of people, the vast majority, the employees, by means of this analytic he could open up explanations for so many of the mysteries about modern capitalist society that other theories were less capable of understanding or understood in ways that working class people would find a lot less persuasive than this Marxian analysis. And here's my last point just to load it on a bit. This theory obviously teaches workers a very difficult lesson. If you're a worker in capitalism, a man or a woman, and you've said proudly to yourself, I am never going to work for anyone who doesn't pay me what I'm worth, then unfortunately Marxism has a sad message for you. You don't understand the system you live in. You are never going to get paid what you're worth. Because what you're worth is the value your labor adds by its exertion. And the employer has no interest in giving you what your value is worth. To use my example, if your labor added $25 worth of output per hour of your effort, and the employer gave you the value of your work, the $25, then there'd be no surplus at all and he wouldn't increase his value, his money at the end compared to what he had at the beginning. If there's nothing in it for him, he's not going to do it. In other words, you're never going to get paid what you're worth. That's not the way this system works. And if that offends you, and if that upsets you, and that gets you to think, critically, then that's the point of Marxism. Because the conclusion Marx wanted you to draw is you're not going to fix this by pushing for a higher wage, however useful to you that might be. This system is your problem. This way of organizing production is your problem. And here's the solution that Marx only pointed to. He never wrote about it in detail. He didn't believe in predicting the future. That's an amusement park activity, not serious work. But Marx did gesture, he gave us an idea. And he said simply, who needs the capitalist? Workers can get together, organize the production of goods and services, give themselves a wage, and then together decide what to do with the surplus they have produced. Share it amongst themselves? Why not? Use it to grow the business? Why not? But let's democratically decide, we workers, since we produced the surplus, let's democratically decide with what it is we produced. And then we don't need a capitalist any more than people needed a king once they realized that they could get along real well without one.
0: Richard, I'm so glad we're able to provide this platform to go over basic definitions, of Marxism, Marxist economic, Marxist theory. Of course, you have been providing this kind of popular education for young people and perhaps people who are formerly young people for a long time, (laughs) uh, doing it in both the university setting and as a public intellectual. But I, I think it's critically important that the movement in America, which is for social change, not simply be an activist movement. It has to be a movement grounded in ideas, grounded in theory. One of the key elements of of a US culture as it developed since the early part of the 17th century as a settler colonial project, at least initially, was that you know, it was a society based on can-do pragmatism, and theory was relegated to last place or no place. And so, as a movement that seeks social change and recognizes activism alone is insufficient, although it's critically important, we need theory. So, I, I want to thank you, and I look forward to this and other shows where we're going to talk about basic Marxist definitions and categories. In our last couple minutes, I want to Again, just to get additional clarity on this issue of surplus value to sort of summarize that this struggle over who has control over the surplus value is part of what Marx would have described as an irreconcilable conflict between the classes. Workers, as you put it, always want more of the surplus, the surplus they created with their labor. And the capitalists want more for themselves, and not simply because the capitalist is necessarily greedy, that may be the case, but capitalists also need to constantly attract other capital for investment, and capital will flow to where profit is greatest, meaning where surplus value is greatest. And as a consequence, if surplus value is, let's say, reduced because workers have higher wages, better benefits... It may make another capitalist more attractive in terms of investor capital, and that will do in the other capitalists. So the capitalists, whether they're humane, rational, go to church or synagogue on the weekend or the mosque, no matter what their philosophical undertaking, in the broader system within which they work, they must always strive to have the highest rate of surplus value, the rate of surplus value. And also, another feature of this, which gives the struggle a particular kind of toxicity, I would say, is that at the end of the day, the worker who doesn't own the product at least has the wage to take back. But the capitalist who has invested the $20, we're using the $20 sort of model here, to buy raw materials, machinery, the factory, and to hire workers at a particular wage, they will get their surplus value, realize their profit, not at the end of the workday, but only when they sell the product. So they must sell. The surplus value can't be realized except by sale. So in capitalism, because it's based on the sale at a market and the market is never for sure, there's always great uncertainty and also extreme competition. Now, earlier social systems which were also based on class society or private property relations, say feudalism, for instance, or the system of slavery from antiquity, like in in Athens where most of the population was not free and not part of the democratic process, but were in fact enslaved people, there was also surplus value derived. The feudal serf, for instance, a slave to the land, unable to leave the land they took a certain part of their agricultural product they used it to feed themselves and their family and the lord the master the landed gentry they took the rest and there was surplus value but it was very discernible you knew exactly how much you kept and you knew exactly how much the feudal master took in the case of a systems based on slavery it wasn't the worker's labor or labor power that was being purchased for a certain number of hours per day But the human being themselves who became the property of the slave owner. And so, obviously, everything above the cost of maintaining the enslaved person through food and shelter, everything belonged to the slave owner. So, we have these different private property systems that have evolved over time, slavery from antiquity, then feudalism, Than capitalism, it wasn't all a straight line of you know march through history. There were lots of zigs and zags and ups and downs and forwards and backwards. But nonetheless, there was a you know a general trajectory. The difference in capitalism is that unlike slavery or unlike feudalism, where you could clearly see what the what the surplus value was that was being kept by the quote private property owner. It's hidden in capitalism because it looks like there's an exchange. The worker sells something, their ability to go to work, their ability to labor for a certain number of hours a day, they get something in return and they are free to take the job or not take the job. They're free to work longer or if they don't want to work longer, they can quit and try to go somewhere else. So there's the appearance of, quote, personal freedom, even though as a class you have to work for somebody. And also the place where profit is made or surplus value is created, it's hidden under capitalism. And I believe that's one of the great contributions of Marxism and Marxist economy is it unearths the riddle of where the profit comes from, which in one way is obvious as you put it in the beginning, but in other ways, not as obvious because it appears that wage workers are entering into a relationship with their bosses that's, that's free, that's independent. And that's a matter of choice. Anyway, let's wrap up with this.
1: Yeah, I I basically agree. If I had any slight variation, I would say that in Marx's view, each society that organizes its production so that a small number of people control and dominate the production process, whether it's a master doing that relative to slaves or a lord doing it relative to serfs, or an employer doing it relative to employees. These are systems in which a minority controls the surplus that gets produced in every society. They use it typically to enrich themselves. That's why we visit the pyramids created in societies with masses of slaves or the wonderful chateaus along the River Loire in France, created by feudal lords, or we marvel at the palaces of Bill Gates and Jeffrey Bezos, who are the people doing this to a T now. Marx said they all develop ways of thinking to rationalize, to justify, we use this notion of exchange. Well, you know, you're free to leave, and I'm paying you what you're worth. All of these notions are designed to make it seem reasonable. In feudalism, by the way, in European feudalism, when the dominant institution was the Roman Catholic Church, at least until the Reformation, Other theories were developed, for example, that there was a god who lived in the sky and who was testing you to see whether you were a good Christian or not by making your life on earth a bit of a difficulty, at least a little bit, and to see that you were moral enough. And if you were, well then you would ascend to heaven upon your death, where you would live with the angels, forever and ever. That's another theory to explain what's going on, and it's a kind of comfort, like it might be a comfort to know that you were getting a fair exchange when you sold your labor power and got a wage. When you have this fundamentally undemocratic arrangement of production, and let's make no mistake, every office, every store, every factory, with a few tiny exceptions, But in a capitalist economic system, a tiny group of people at the top, unaccountable to the employees who are the majority and who have to live with the results of the decisions of those at the top, those at the top, the minority that's unaccountable, make those decisions. That's the opposite of democracy. And yet we live in a society that celebrates how democratic it is every day in the face of this absolutely opposite reality. The power of the mental construction, which is what theory is, could never be clearer then to understand that while it's necessary to have a revolutionary theory to break beyond capitalism, it's also true that capitalism couldn't survive 10 minutes without the theories it needs to keep itself from being thrown over by the people who are on the short end of the stick.
0: Richard Wolf is the co founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books. The latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. It's now available in e book format. Be sure to check out Richard Wolf's materials at rdwolf.com. That's r-d-w-o-l-f-f.com. We are the Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners.